This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, uh, we're talking about uh, Brexit, uh, the set of uh, ongoing debates, seemingly never-ending debates in Great Britain over the last few years over whether Britain will and how it will uh, detach itself from a number of commitments it's made uh, to the European Union, and in a larger sense, uh, the future of Britain's relationship with Europe, a a set of relationships that go back a long way that have been fraught with controversy for many, many centuries, as we'll discuss today. Uh, We have with us one of the uh, foremost experts uh, on uh, the history of the British Empire, British society, and the relevance of that history for today, uh, my friend, uh, Professor Dane Kennedy from George Washington University. Dane is a leading expert, as I said, and the author of many books, uh, two of my favorite are uh, his recent books, The Imperial History Wars, Debating the British Empire uh, from 2018. Reading that book reminded me of many uh, graduate school debates uh, that we used to have about uh, different historiography. (laughs) And uh, a wonderful book, really wonderful book he wrote that I've used actually for many students called Decolonization, uh, a very short introduction. Uh, In addition to being a professor, uh, Dane is also the director of the National History Center in Washington, D.C. Dane, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Before we turn to our discussion with Dane, uh, we have, uh, of course, uh, Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. Uh, what's the title of your poem this week, Zachary? England 2019. Well, let's hear about England 2019. England, home of the language with infinite declensions, trying to decline a future for the fields that are layered in antiquity and empire. The roads where T.E. Lawrence slammed his head into the country asphalt. Dickens, London, Byron's heaven and hell. Christie's Scotland Yard. McCartney in Liverpool finding a liar. England, worldly cities, great empires, gargantuan legacies and roads to Wigan Pier. If a man made a steam engine, a mathematical field, a religious sect, it happened here. But England is an enigma, cracker of the enigma, bricklayers, land of King Lear. An empire is a strange thing to mention in a London field, a child of a world engrossed, and rightfully so, in dismantling imperialism, toe by toe, woe by woe. And it is 2019, a century since the First World War, Brexit rubbing off one's lips from fish and chips, island of rich and ships, forced to become Belgium, watching the kid in Hyde Park kick the ball endlessly into the lake. And climbing backwards through the Diana Fountain, you can smell it in the air, the uncertainty, the way this is the ruler of untrue Western greatness, held afloat by the dreams of the Lebanese and Indian children in the park. How empire reversed, the justice of it all, the bluntness, smelling it in the rain along a scaffolded Big Ben, staring down the Thames towards Europe and the English Channel. The bridge in the fog, alone but surrounded by clouds, staring off into the distance, whole languages and peoples walking by, It feels strangely isolating, not like the fictional benevolent lords on the Yorkish moors, but the way Westminster and the former concentrated power of the world looms over as I stare out towards Rotterdam. That's wonderful imagery there, Zachary. Uh, What is your poem about? 
my poem is really about uh, what a strange moment this is for for Britain, but really for England, as it uh, as it sort of contemplates uh, a new world where it's no longer an empire or really as much of a world power, and how it's going to reconcile itself with Europe and uh, the rest of the world. Right, right. Well, that seems like a perfect place to turn to, to Dane. Um, as you've written about uh, so well, Dane, uh, Britain's been in decline for a long time. Its empire has been receding for, for, for decades and centuries, really. Why is that such a big issue for the British today? Well, I, first of all, I think it's important to, to be cautious when we use the word decline right. in terms of, of the quality of life for the average British citizen. It actually has improved since the loss of empire. And that's something that we often lose sight of when we, when we talk about sort of great states and their, their influence and their shape in the world. Uh, so I just wanted to offer that qualifier sure. there before we get started. Uh, but uh, certainly... I, there's no question that uh, there is a sense among many Britons that uh, the greatness that uh, Britain exhibited uh, in its past, uh, and that past can be identified in various ways by various figures, uh, that, that that greatness has, has been diminished, and that diminishment is in many respects uh, connected to the fact that uh, it has tied its fate, its its future to to the uh, EU, to the European Union, or at least that's the view of uh, many of those who we now call Brexiters, who right. have uh, won won the won the war. I think in terms of Britain's future, and 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 why why have they won the war? Because the the, the Britain many Americans uh, interact with is is the Britain of London, which is so cosmopolitan and so connected yeah. to the world, right? Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, it, this is one of the instances where, you know, various people have noted the parallels between the politics in, in the UK and the politics here in the United States. And I think uh, you see that in terms of the growing um, disparities between the experiences of those in well, in the U.S. experience in, in, in the coast, the cosmopolitan coastal uh, areas and in the uh, center of the country. And in the case of the, uh, of the United Kingdom, there is London, which is this extraordinary city yes. that uh, seems to suck up all of the energy <laughs> and wealth and power of, of the United Kingdom. And then there are its... Uh, it's Midlands, uh, the Northern Territories, and of course, uh, also the fact that there is um, uh, ethnic distinctions that are also political distinctions that also mark uh, the the tensions that that operate here. But so so why did why did uh, the Leave referendum uh, succeed? Is is your question? I suppose. Right. Why did it succeed, and uh, what should we expect from the consequence? Okay, okay. Well, two different questions. First of all, why did it succeed? Uh, well, it succeeded by a vote of 52% in, fa in favor to 48% against. So another point to keep in mind yes. is just how narrow a victory this was. But it succeeded for a variety of reasons, as in any election, people 
vote for or against something for a, a range of, 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 of motivations. And in this case, uh, certainly one of them was a growing resentment at the increase of Eastern European immigrants in, right. in Britain who had gained access to the country because it is a member of the European Union. So uh, Poles and Bulgarians and various others who had begun to make their appearance in you know, small towns and cities uh, that, uh, and, and for many people, this was a disorienting and alienating process. Right, right. Um, there was also a, a general uh, objection to the European Union bureaucracy, which was seen by many people as a threat to uh, British sovereignty, and that ties in, in particular, I think, to one of the, the ways in which... Um, this, this vote uh, pointed to stark differences, regional differences. I think that that resentment, that uh, threat, as it was seen to, to uh, British sovereignty, was particularly evident in England itself. Uh, not in London, obviously, but in much of the rest of England, where there was a growing, has been for, for a decade or more, a growing sense of, of English nationalism. I see. Travel through through England uh, these days, and, and it's striking how often you'll see the flag of St. George, which is hmm. the symbol of, of England, not of the United Kingdom. It's not the Union Jack. And uh, for, for many Englishmen, the, the argument made by Nigel Farage and others that, that Brexit could be Independence Day for, for England from the European Union was a, an attractive and appealing uh, argument. Um, and there were, there were others. I mean, certainly the decay of the industrial heartland of, of Britain and a, feel, a feeling among many of the people who had been left behind that uh, the global elites were doing very well right. in this new globalized economy. They had been left behind. Um, you know, the, there were false promises made that uh, if Britain left the EU, they would get more money for the National Health Service. So there were a range of motives that uh, operated in shaping uh, the decisions of, of voters. But, but one thing that, that's, that's difficult for me to understand, at least, Dane, is uh, certainly the anti-immigrant sentiment, the resentment of, uh, toward cosmopolitan elites who are doing so well. That makes sense. That resonates with the United States. But uh, on the other hand, um, without these international connections, England, as, as Zachary pointed out in his poem, becomes a very small country, right? And, and, yeah. and how can proud English nationalists <laughs> want that to happen? Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's the paradox, right? And and part of this was was the argument made by many of those uh, favoring uh, Brexit that this wasn't going to isolate Britain, that it wasn't going to make it a, a, a small uh, country uh, in 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 the world. I I should I should say by the way, and and this is. This is the counter-argument. Uh, the, the finance minister from Denmark uh, noted after the, the Brexit vote that uh, said that there are two kinds of European nations. There are small nations, and there are countries that have not yet realized they are small nations. <laughs> <laughs> I Which like is that. a, a pretty pointed jab, yeah. 
but and and I think that that gets to the issue in some ways. That, yes. Um, many many Britons, especially Englishmen, felt that they are not a small nation, but that they had been diminished actually by membership in the European Union, and that diminishment lay in terms of uh, sort of the growing economic and political influence of Germany, which of course they had fought two great wars right. against, and which they still saw as uh, a, in some sense, a, a, a an enemy. Um, <laughs> and there was this this sense that uh, if they left the EU, um, Britain could return in some way to the kind of greatness that it had had before it had joined the, the European Union. Which is the issue that, of course, especially intrigues me as a as a historian of empire, because uh, even though it wasn't an argument that was front and center in the the uh, the Brexit campaign itself, it has, in its aftermath in the last three years, become much more evident in the arguments and the debates that have uh, been applied by by those who who favor uh, uh, leaving. European Union. Sure, sure. Zachary, you had a question? Yeah. Uh, historically, how has uh, Britain and England specifically view itself in relation to Europe? I mean, being an island uh, must really change the geopolitical uh, nature of it all. It, it, it does indeed. It's a, it's a great question. And actually, I, I wanted to add, I, I like the distinction that you drew in your poem or, or the qualification that you made between Britain and England. And yes. I think it's always important to keep that distinction in mind. And that's part of our story, too, which I'm sure we'll get to, the role of uh, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and, right. and, and the like. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the British... Have have always had an ambivalent relationship toward uh, the continent of Europe, and it does lie in the fact that it is an island. So, for example, if we just simply consider Britain's defense needs and posture until, you know, the rise of our air power in the 20th century, um, the navy was critical to, to to British independence and power. And it had no need for a large standing army, which stood in stark contrast to the continental powers. Right. Uh, and the British prided themselves in the fact that they didn't have a large army and that they didn't have a draft, and in fact didn't institute a draft until midway through the First World War. So there is that. There's also, you know, it plays itself out in all sorts of peculiar ways. I remember when... Um, the decision was made to build the channel that would link Britain to to the continent, uh, the rail uh, line under underneath the English Channel. That uh, there were opponents of that in Britain who uh, made the argument, for example, that if we open up this land bridge, an underwater land bridge, that that would open the door for uh, rabies to enter Britain. <laughs> All right, that, that, that the British don't have rabies, but oh they have gosh. it on the continent. Oh so there's, there's a lot of anxiety. It has been reinforced by the, the many wars that Britain has fought against, first against France in the 18th and early 19th right. century, then, of course, against Germany uh, in two major wars in the 20th century. So uh, there are a lot of reasons why the British look askance at the continent and uh, feel themselves not fully European. Mm. 
Mm. And and of course, as as uh, both you and Zachary pointed out, uh, even within the British Isles, uh, there's in a sense uh, an internal empire, right? Including Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and and one of the curious elements of Brexit is that it calls into question uh, the permanence of that relationship, right? It certainly does. Um, it it actually sort of sort of advances trends that have been in play, frankly, since the empire came to an end. So it's, it's striking um, that if, if you trace the origins of Scottish nationalism and Welsh nationalism, they really uh, originate, uh, Scottish and Welsh national parties originate in the 1960s, which is when decolonization reaches its culminating point in many ways. Um, and that was followed in the late 1990s by uh, devolution that created separate uh, Scottish and Welsh parliaments. Uh, a year later, uh, we had the Good Friday Agreement that right. restored self-rule to Northern Ireland. And so by the 20th, 21st century, by, by the 2000s, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland had all sort of established themselves as quasi-autonomous political entities and had, by the same token, created much stronger, I'd say especially the Scots, uh, a much stronger sense of a distinct Scottish national identity. And that, of course, led in 2014 to the Scottish independence referendum, which failed, but it came close. Um, And it's in that context, too, that I think you have to understand the the growth of of English nationalism. Um, In England, there hasn't been an argument for a separate English parliament, but I think one can see uh, that this English nationalism is projecting some of those same views and concerns onto Europe in its argument for uh, sovereignty. Uh, and the argument for sovereignty is, in fact, one that the, the Scots and, and the right. and others have, have made. So this, this is a process that's been uh, long in the making, um, and it has arisen in part because with the end of empire, a sense of a, a common British identity simply didn't carry as much weight and power as it had uh, at a point when, when Britain ruled uh, much, of the, much of the world. Right. So now, with Brexit, um, those, those uh, tendencies are, are, are growing even stronger, because uh, if, in fact, well, not if, I think at this point we, we can say when, Britain leaves uh, the EU, that uh, the likelihood of the Scots demanding another referendum, and this time that referendum succeeding, are, 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 are considerably heightened. And uh, Northern Ireland right. has become an increasingly problematic uh, issue as well. And so there are arguments made uh, in Northern Ireland by Catholics in Northern Ireland and in Ireland itself that, uh, that the island should be joined back together. Of course, of course. And in the Scottish case, just to just to play this out, the the scenario would be one where the Scots vote for independence and then become part of the EU as England is not part of the EU. That's exactly right. Yeah. 
Now, the question is whether, in fact, uh, a government led by uh, Boris Johnson will, in fact, allow the Scots to hold another referendum. I mean, it's not a, a given that that will be permitted, as I understand it. So that could create its own conflicts wow. <laughs> and wow. tensions. Absolutely. But there's just no question uh, that that Brexit has increased these um, dividing tendencies within within. Uh, what had been known as Great Britain. Great. Zachary, you have another question? Yes. Yeah, so increasingly, uh, England and Britain have seen themselves becoming increasingly dependent on the very immigrants and others, uh, um, other outsiders that, uh, that, that in many ways have been vilified by the, by the campaigns uh, for Brexit. How, do, how does England and specifically English nationalists reconcile this? Ah, uh, yes. Well... Uh, <laughs> I mean, there there are leading members of the Conservative Party who who themselves are very much in favor of of Brexit, who who come from um, uh, those sorts of uh, ethnic backgrounds themselves. Um, so uh, one of the things that w- one has seen is is that over time, as those uh, ethnic communities have at least to some degree become integrated, assimilated within Britain. Uh, there are some members of those communities who uh, share, share the views of, of, the, of the Brexiteers themselves. There's a larger issue here, however, and that, and that again, I think, goes back to the empire. And that is um, the way in which, despite the fact that there are these um, members of what we would describe as minority communities who, who, who share this view and are part of Brexit. Um, there's no question that the majority, I think, of those communities uh, view this, um, this move uh, with some anxiety. And it, that's rooted in a, in a broader sort of cult, set of cultural wars that have been playing out over the past uh, oh, couple of decades, uh, at least. Um, what happened is, with decolonization, you have this flood of immigrants of color from colonial and ex-colonial territories, from South Asia, from Africa, from the Caribbean, from the Caribbean, um, and those communities for some time uh, were isolated in the inner cities. Uh, there were significant racial tensions. There were race riots that that uh, occurred in the 70s and 80s. And, and other times, and there was a racial backlash among uh, white ethnic uh, Britons uh, that were manifested, for example, in the notorious uh, Rivers of Blood speech by Enoch Powell in the late 1960s, the rise of the British Nationalist Party, which was a quasi-fascist party in the 1980s, and by uh, UKIP, or the United Kingdom Independence Party Hmm. in the the 2000s. and so there was this culture war that, that ensued uh, between those who basically claimed a sense of national identity that was ethnically, perhaps even racially based, and those both from these communities of color and other cosmopolitan elements within British society who saw an opportunity to create a multicultural Britain. Hmm. 
And that struggle manifested itself in large measure over debates about the imperial past, right. about the slave trade, about uh, whether you know, a, a statue to Cecil Rhodes should still stand at Oriel College in Oxford or be removed, uh, over whether uh, uh, prime ministers should apologize for the Irish famine and the Amritsar massacre in India, whole slew of issues. And it seems like they, they, they occurred almost every month. For <laughs> I've been keeping track of these wow. things for, for years and years. And that certainly sharpened, I think, um, the intensity of resentment uh, among many of those who who became uh, favor favorable to to uh, Brexit. It it to, sounds uh, it sounds hmm? Dane so strikingly like the United States, even though we didn't have an empire in, in anywhere near the same scale or, or or form. Oh yes, it is. It's very very similar, and and what makes it particularly similar, of course, is. The presence of these immigrant communities yes, yes. and the way in which they have reshaped uh, much of, of life, especially in, in British cities. Right. So, so that was uh, the optimistic pathway I wanted us to follow for the last few minutes. We always like to uh, elucidate the, the historical foundation for contemporary issues, uh, understand the difficulties, and then use that history, Dane, to understand and think about positive pathways forward. Is the is the presence of uh, these immigrant communities, uh, which, as you say, have reshaped so many parts of Great Britain, is, is that actually the way out of this dilemma? Do, the, do those communities offer offer an alternative to what otherwise seems like a very head-in-the-sand, uh, right. ahistorical approach, right? The, part of what you're saying is that many Brits want want the benefits of empire without having empire. Right, right, right. Um, I'm not sure that those communities per se offer... I, it, I think maybe it can ref, be reframed in, in, a, in a different way. Sure. And that is... I mean, if we look at the the argument of the Brexiteers themselves, um, not many of the voters whose whose decisions were reactive to you know immigrant communities and various other things, but to the Brexiteers, I think it's important to recognize that theirs was not and has not been and is still not a uh, sort of uh, you know, bury yourself in the sand attitude towards Britain's future. Now, the question is how they can reshape Britain to meet their vision of what that future might be. I mean, you hear a lot of talk, for example, of things like Singapore on the Thames, <laughs> and which is this argument that, that has been voiced by many of the Brexiteers, people who now sort of hold positions of real power in the government, uh, that, that Britain can return to the days in some sense of its... Uh, swashbuckling, free-trading past. Not necessarily a past that involves empire or colonies, although certainly that's part of what's evoked here, but a, 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 a returning to, to a world in which Britain isn't constrained by the rules and restraints that operate within the European Union. Right. And What's what's striking in this argument is that they see a future for Britain in which it can become this global hub for 
movement of goods and finance. I see. Uh, that uh, would, in fact, be quite cosmopolitan in, a, in much the same way, I suppose, that Singapore is actually right. quite cosmopolitan. Now, whether they can pull that off or not is, <laughs> is another, another matter. There are other visions, too, by, by other Brexiteers about how they might move uh, in the future, all of which are tied in one way or another to, to uh, you know, sort of a, a pre-European Union Britain right, uh, right. that is linked in some ways to memories of, of empire. Right. Um, whether that's hopeful or not, uh, depends on your point of view, I suppose. I guess. I guess the thing I would say is that my suspicion is that all of them understand that this is not going to lead to the restoration of a British Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Britain simply doesn't have the power, the military, the, the political power to exert itself in the way it did a hundred, two hundred years ago, and that in fact it needs to find a new way to to make these connections across the globe but i these folks i think do genuinely genuinely believe that that's that's possible and that it's possible in a world where they're not restrained by uh the rules and regulations of the european union right no that that actually doesn't sound so bad as you as you say it i don't know if it's possible but it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> sound so bad zachary you had one more question yeah um how do we see a, a way forward out of this um this sort of a british reaction towards towards greater integration with the with with europe how do we see a way forward in in a british politics that seems in many ways to be to be very stagnant yes yes great question and it's the, the same question that we ask ourselves about the current political situation in America, yes. too, isn't it? Yes. It's become so terribly polarized, so divided, that one, one searches for some sort of way out. And just as it's hard to see a way out in the American political crisis, I think it's, at present, very hard to see a way out for Britain as well. I think that the two sides are, in fact, so deeply polarized and have such profoundly different views of, of Britain, uh, what it means, who is part of the British nation, and where it should stand in world affairs, that uh, I don't... I don't see a way of overcoming those 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 differences at least at present hmm. Hmm. do do those differences do they do they uh, apply th- through generations or, or do you see younger voters falling mm. into them because one thing we've talked about on the podcast quite often is how how different younger voters frame the issues from older voters at least in the United States yeah, well, you know, the, 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 the election they just had marks a profound change in a lot of ways. Certainly younger voters, well, let me back up and say that certainly younger voters were more favorable uh, toward remaining in the European Union, more attracted toward the cosmopolitan opportunities that it provided uh, than older voters were. I mean, that's one of the start distinctions right. that, that occurred with that the, the referendum. What's happened in the latest election, however, is, of course, this extraordinary 
success that the conservatives have had in what had been areas that were dominated by and had been dominated by the Labor Party for 60, 70 years. And that, too, is is a dramatic shift and change. I mean, what implications that will have, and whether it's a one-time deal or whether it right. represents a, a broader change in, in the political environment is, is, is really hard to say, I think, at this point. But it is a shift that's really significant and historically profound. Yes. And um, I, I know we're looking for, for, for positive <laughs> outcomes of this. My concern, however, is that what it in fact is doing is, if not intensifying the, the polarization within England itself, it's intensifying the polarization between England and Scotland. Right, right. Northern that Ireland. makes sense. Well, I, I think what I think what what comes through loud and clear in in your scholarship and in in this wonderful discussion we've had today, is is how dynamic this process is. On the one hand, yep. we seem stuck in a in a debate between uh, Brexit or Remain, between Europe or an independent Britain or Singapore on the Thames. Uh, on the other hand, uh, a lot of things are changing before our eyes, and 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 maybe that's could be positive or negative, but I think it captures what's at the core of the, the history of Britain in the last three to four centuries, which is that this this uh, island nation that became a great uh, empire has, has gone through quite a lot of change and is still going through quite a lot of change today. And, and, and maybe that's the, the most important lesson to take away. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's a good way of putting it. Absolutely, Dane. Thank you so much for sharing your your insights with us, Zachary. Thank you for your poem, and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.